Point Naval Shipyard in San Francisco, where a massive real estate development project is under construction, there's a white windowless tower. It's known as Building 815, and it once housed the Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory. During the Cold War, scientists who operated here studied radioactive debris from nuclear bomb blasts. Sometimes they conducted experiments that exposed humans to radiation. When the blast goes off, then you put your hands over your eyes like this. You can see the bones in your hand. That's how bright they are. Thank you for tuning in to the third and final episode of Sandblasted at the Shipyard, a three-part series about San Francisco's secret Cold War nuclear lab and toxic legacy. I'm creator and host, Rebecca Bowe. A lot was happening in the world during the time when the Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory operated at the Hunters Point Naval Shipyard. The lab handled radioactive material and studied cleanup methods as part of its work. It dumped toxic waste into the surrounding area, which the Navy is still working on cleaning up today. While the cleanup has attracted plenty of attention, the lab's connection to human radiation experiments and this dark chapter of the nuclear era has only seldom been acknowledged. In the military, they tell you what to do, and you do it. And if you don't do it, you have big problems. You better do it, or you're going to go to the stockade. Period. That's it. In 1956, Aldridge Jones served in the military. He was based at Fort Ord, not far from Monterey. But that summer, he was sent to the San Francisco Bay Area to help with a research study that exposed him to radioactive material. Decades later, Jones, who was then 84, shared his story. God, if I'd have known then what I know now, and I had the opportunity, I would never have gone. The military experiment was called Operation Stoneman. There was a group of us in the 50th Chemical uh, Platoon that were sent to Camp Stoneman. Camp Stoneman was a military base located in modern-day Pittsburgh. When Jones and his comrades arrived, it had been abandoned for some time. When we got there, they took us through various things. And then there was a truck that came in, and it was full of radiated material. They told us that we had to take that radiated material and put it on the roofs of at least... It was two or three buildings, I think it was. I was involved in putting it on one building. Next, he says, he and other troops used Geiger counters to find out how much gamma radiation the dirt was emitting. And what we did, when we got it up there, we took readings uh, readings of what 
what the dosage was up there. Then we washed off the, the roofs of the buildings. And then we took readings of the radiation that was left on the roof again. And I don't remember the readings there. But all that mud was washed into the gutters. They had to repeat the process over and over again for a week. Other soldiers who participated were made to rub radioactive dirt on their bare arms and hands. They were scanned for radiation, then they washed off, then they were scanned again. Scientists running the operation called the substance the soldiers coated themselves with synthetic fallout, but it gave off real gamma radiation. It contained a radioactive isotope of an artificial element called lanthanum-140. Although technical reports we found described the study participants as volunteers, Jones said he had no choice in the matter. We had no idea who was involved. We were just told what to do, and we did it. As it turned out, the experiment was a partnership between the Army and the Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory. That's the military research lab that operated at the Hunters Point shipyard at the height of the Cold War. The lab was particularly focused on what was known at the time as decontamination, so methods for clearing away nuclear fallout. Of course, scientists today understand that radioactive material can persist for hundreds or even thousands of years. That's why the Navy is still working today to clean up radioactive waste at the Hunters Point shipyard. This wasn't the first exposure for Jones. In 1955, he was deployed to the Nevada test site, about an hour north of Las Vegas. And it was just, we were taken there to show what the atomic bomb looked like when it went off. Um, We were given glasses that would withstand the, the light of the blast. It was like... If you, were, if you were in the daylight, you put those glasses on, you couldn't see. You couldn't see 10 feet or so at all. But with the glasses on and the nuclear bomb went off, you could certainly see the bomb really bright. The Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory back in San Francisco also played a role in those nuclear detonation tests. Its scientists collected reams of data. And so after that... We were taken out to the testing grounds, and part of the part of the people were put in a uh, a tent where the vehicles that go on out in the testing area would be brought in, and they would be washed down and tested for radiation. <clears throat> I was within one mile of ground zero three times when the blast goes with the blast went off. We were in a revetment, which is below the ground level. And uh, literally, you could, when the blast goes off, it's just like if you close your eyes and open them, and the blast goes off, then you put your hands over your eyes like this. You can see the bones in your hand and look right through your hands, 
and see the vehicle that's beside you bouncing around. That's how bright they are. All told, Jones witnessed 14 nuclear bomb explosions in the desert. Today he suffers from blindness and blood flow issues that his doctors have suggested might be related to his radiation exposure. You can hear the way the military talked about these tests from this clip from the 1950s, where a general describes a bomb blast that his troops had just witnessed. General Hodge, what would you say was the main reaction of the troops there in the trenches as they were waiting for the bomb to go off? Well, they, uh, the reaction of the troops in the trenches, they did exactly what they were told to do. They showed good discipline, which was good sense in this case. Any man stuck his head up, there was trouble in store for him. And they seemed to take all the discipline very well. They did indeed. When Jones was made to spread radioactive dirt onto rooftops, he'd been sent in wearing nothing more protective than his normal summer fatigues. He was part of the first group sent to Camp Stoneman for the lab's research. In 1958, a second group of soldiers was dispatched there. This time, researchers wanted to simulate what would happen if combat troops were fighting in a nuclear battlefield. They studied how much radiation the soldiers' clothing and their bodies would absorb. Each time they geared up, they had to crawl through several hundred feet of radioactive soil. It also used lanthanum-140, synthetic fallout. It was manufactured at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, then transported to California in a specially designed vehicle. Years ago, I made several trips to the research room at the National Archives branch in San Bruno, where declassified government records are stored. I was trying to get a clearer picture of the human radiation experiments conducted by the Naval Radiological Defense Lab. Staff at the archives had very detailed instructions about looking through records. So since you're looking at original records today, we're going to ask that you go ahead, keep it please one folder at a time, and also please keep the pages in order. Declassified memos from 1947 show that the Radiation Lab was established together with the Atomic Energy Commission, a civilian department that succeeded the Manhattan Project. In the first episode, we told you about how scientists from this lab medically monitored Hunters Point shipyard workers because their jobs involved sandblasting irradiated ships that had been subjected to nuclear bomb blasts in the Marshall Islands. Scientists saw an opportunity there for data collection, so they took urine samples to track workers' radiation exposure. Declassified documents revealed this wasn't the only kind of experimentation carried out at the Naval Radiological Defense Lab that used data from human test subjects. We found evidence of a study conducted at the Shipyard Radiation Lab that didn't subject people to radiation, but intentionally burned them using a heat apparatus. The idea was to simulate the flash burns that military personnel would be exposed to if they were close enough to a nuclear bomb blast. But we were most interested in studies showing a pattern of human radiation exposure. We found evidence suggesting several hundred people were exposed to radiation over two decades of the lab's operation. Researchers would inject people with trace amounts of radioactive isotopes of elements naturally found in the human body. Benke was especially interested in athletes, so he saw a great scientific opportunity when he got the chance to try this on the 49ers. It's an example of what's known as a tracer study, which at the time were happening all over the country. Tracer studies would be really minimal amounts of radioisotopes that were relatively harmless, that weren't going to damage, say, the thyroid or 
or another organ of the body that would be excreted harmlessly. That's journalist Eileen Welsom. She authored The Plutonium Files, a book about human radiation experiments. In her book, she notes that institutions that carried out human radiation experiments often defended tracer studies as harmless. But she's skeptical of that conclusion. We don't know whether they were harmless or not, because we don't know who the patients were in all those studies. I think there's some records showing where they were done, but it would be very hard to find those records now uh, and, and, and be able to find out who the patients were, where they lived, and what happened to them. She says a key problem was that even if doctors didn't think these substances would really harm the test subjects, many of them were given doses of radiation without informed consent. The right thing to have done was to say, this is radioactive iodine. It's not going to hurt you. Would you mind if we gave it to you? So if you are about to put a foreign substance in a person's body, the least you can do is ask. In 1993, Wilson published an investigative series for the Albuquerque Tribune that turned up something much more sinister. It all started when she stumbled upon an intriguing detail in a government document. I uh, came across a footnote that described 18 people who were injected with plutonium during the Manhattan Project. So I was really shocked. Um, So that began my research, and I spent the next six years trying to find these 18 people. But long story short, once this series came out, um, it created a furor. I mean, it it was incredible. Um, I called it the big story that nearly wiped out the little paper. Her newsroom was inundated with calls, some from as far away as Japan. Wilson's series had uncovered a chapter of history previously swept under the rug, Her work showed that scientists who had participated in the Manhattan Project, a vast government effort to build the atomic bomb, had also conducted a secret program of intentionally exposing people to radiation. This happened even though some within their ranks argued against experimenting on humans. Some even compared what was being done to experimentation carried out by the Nazis. But the studies went ahead, fueled by an obsession with preparing for nuclear warfare. And there was plenty of money to fund it. The Atomic Energy Commission shelled out the cash. All the armed forces, of course, got into the act. I mean, there was like millions of dollars available, uh, largely from the federal government, to fund this research. So it was just an explosion of research all over the country, everywhere. Her work prompted the federal government to launch an investigation, President Bill Clinton convened an advisory committee on human radiation experiments. The commission would compile declassified public records and investigate what had transpired. On October 3rd, 1995, the task force released the findings and Clinton made a public statement. While most of the tests were ethical by any standards, some were unethical, not only by today's standards, but by the standards of the time in which they were conducted. They fail both the test of our national values and the test of humanity. In another tracer study from 1949, 
a UC Berkeley researcher exposed inmates at San Quentin Prison to small amounts of radioactive iron. The prisoners were labeled as volunteers. Walsam also uncovered the story of a Chinese teenager who was being treated for bone cancer at the Chinese hospital in San Francisco in 1947. Researchers from the University of California, San Francisco, gave him an injection of americium, a synthetic radioactive element. He died months later, while some guesses from his cancer. An americium injection would have done absolutely nothing beneficial for this patient. UCSF told the investigating committee that most of the records associated with this patient had been lost or destroyed. The report also demonstrates that these and other experiments were carried out on precisely those citizens who count most on the government for its help, the destitute and the gravely ill. But the dispossessed were not alone. Members of the military, precisely those on whom we and our government count most, they were also test subjects. Informed consent means your doctor tells you the risk of the treatment you are about to undergo. In too many cases, informed consent was withheld. You might think the president discussing revelations of secret military research carried out on vulnerable populations would be big news. Not exactly. By coincidence, the report came out on the same day as the O.J. Simpson murder trial verdict. Above entitled action, find the defendant Orenthal James Simpson not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187. So it barely made a blip in the news cycle. Few people remember this, much less connected to San Francisco or its shipyard. Even today, as Bay Area news outlets report on the decades-long environmental cleanup at the Hunters Point shipyard, the lab's role in human experiments almost never comes up. Among the records that did survive from the era are accounts of research the San Francisco lab conducted far away in the Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean. You might remember this from the last episode. The U.S. military had been conducting atomic tests here for years. This time, lab scientists were brought in to study how radiation affected islanders. On March 1st, 1954, the military detonated a bomb there with 1,000 times the energy of the one that destroyed Hiroshima in a test called Castle Bravo. This thermonuclear explosion was the largest nuclear test in U.S. history. Historic archives of Operation Bravo still exist, showing footage of the explosion while a commander reports on measurements taken to determine the size of the blast. This photograph was taken from an airplane at 50 miles. The width of the fireball at this time, about three seconds after detonation, was four miles. The top of the fireball at this time... 40 seconds after detonation, was five miles above sea level. Prove that we can have a high-yield weapon weighing less than 10 tons. Castle Bravo was nearly three times as powerful as its architects predicted. So Marshallese people living on Rongelap Atoll and nearby islands were exposed to extremely dangerous levels of nuclear fallout. The Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory was involved here, too. Scientists were sent in after the blasts to study Marshallese people who had received high doses of radiation from that event. There's very little discussion of these human radiation experiments. 
It's something that's still not really talked about in the Marshall Islands. It's something the U.S. government never talks about. It's a conversation that very rarely happens at all in public. That's anthropologist Holly Barker, a professor at the University of Washington, who conducted extensive research in the Marshall Islands. This is her delivering a lecture in Seattle in 2012. As she points out, the Marshallese people who were caught in a blizzard of radioactive fallout were not evacuated prior to the Castle Bravo bomb explosion. In the years that followed, people suffered severe health consequences. They developed cancer, battled thyroid problems, and gave birth to infants suffering from critical birth defects, whose lives lasted less than a day. Yet during and after the immense explosion, medical researchers couldn't resist the opportunity for data collection. Following the detonation of one of the largest nuclear tests ever conducted in the world, um, the Bravo test that was tested on March 1st, 1954, after a community, um, two communities, Rongelap and Utrecht, were exposed to radiation from the testing, um, the U.S. government took the people who were exposed and brought them to Kwajalein Atoll and created a military encampment made out of barbed wire where they put the Marshallese who had been exposed to the radiation inside the encampments and enrolled them without their permission into a top-secret medical experimentation program called Project 4.1. And Project 4.1 was to test the effects of radiation on human beings. Some of these tests included injecting radiation directly into the bloodstream of Marshallese so that the U.S. could then study the difference if you expose somebody to radiation from fallout from a weapon or if the, blood, or if the radiation goes into their bloodstream. Other, um, other human radiation experiments included having Marshallese drink radioactive substances directly again, so they could compare what would happen if it went into the body via the mouth, and they could compare that to the radioactive fallouts. Um, The U.S. government took a control population that was not from Rongelap or Utrecht and had never been exposed to radiation from the testing program, um, and also had them injected with radiation or had them drink the radiation so they could compare them to the other group. And so they set up this medical experimentation. Dr. James Robertson, who was assigned to the Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory in 1953, went to Rongelap to track Marshallese people's exposure. He used an instrument called a whole body counter, a lead-lined room weighing about 30 tons. A 1995 interview he gave encapsulates the dehumanizing attitude researchers associated with this lab held toward islanders who suffered severe health effects from nuclear fallout. Marshallese people who were studied for these tests were made to spend up to half an hour inside the whole body counter. Robertson's interview explains that his team used the machine to measure radiation islanders had absorbed by eating contaminated food. He said that while Marshallese test subjects walked into the lead-lined room and waited for the screening process to be over, Researchers played this song to keep the time and to entertain them. He told the interviewer that he grew tired of hearing the same song over and over again. And then she placed them in a bowl. 
Back in San Francisco, some of the same radioactive material that was transported from nuclear bomb tests in the Marshall Islands persists today in the soil at the Hunters Point Naval Shipyard. A major development project is underway there, but it's mired in a toxic cleanup scandal. The effort to clean up the soil has cost more than a billion dollars and gone on for almost 30 years, prompting multiple lawsuits. Many of the shipyard workers and study volunteers who were exposed to radiation during the 1950s and 60s are reaching the end of their lives today, and the history is fading with them. But a new generation hasn't forgotten, and the mess left behind by the U.S. Navy has yet to be fully cleaned up. At this abandoned naval base, once a hub of nuclear research that routinely jeopardized human health on behalf of a military superpower, the future is far from certain. Thank you for listening to Sandblasted at the Shipyard. A special thanks goes out to the Bayview residents and advocates who agreed to be interviewed for this series, the technical experts who made time to share their knowledge, and the team members who made this story possible. Megan Moore, Mel Baker, Laura Wenis, and Jacob Nassib helped with audio engineering and sound design. Stacy Carter and Chris Roberts provided archival audio and photographic research. Michael Stoll and Laura Wenis edited the series. Ambika Kandasami provided fact-checking, and Justin Bentonin assisted with gathering sound. I send my gratitude to the Breathe Network for Racial, Environmental, and Climate Justice for its support to complete this series. I'm podcast creator and host, Rebecca Bowe. I work at a nonprofit environmental organization, and I want to make it clear that this story is unrelated to that work and doesn't express the views of my employer. Thank you so much for tuning in, and goodbye.